We are continuing our journey through, if you've been with us this year, you know we've been continuing a journey through the biblical narrative. We started back in early 2023 by uh, jumping into the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we've worked our way all the way to the kings of Israel, the monarchy period, ancient Israel, when they got to the promised land and they, and they got their first kings, we've made it that far. <laughs> Speak, Lord, for your... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, we, um, the, uh, we've gotten to David, King David's life. We've been on David's life for the past many weeks as we continue our journey. And it's been a good ride. By the way, David has been a hero in our story along the way so far, hasn't he? In a, in a story narrative, you would call him the protagonist. Um, he's the guy that we're identifying with. We're cheering for him as... Um, as we read his story, because he's done a really great job. I mean, he's largely been just stellar in all of his decisions from when he was an unknown person writing songs to the Lord and watching his dad's sheep to the part where he became anointed to be king. His star was rising in Israel, and then he was on the run as a fugitive, and then he was king of just, he's exiled from his own country. He's king of just the southern tribe of Judah all the way to the throne of all of Israel. All through those years, 15, 20 years of his life, he has done the right thing over and over again and has trusted the Lord so beautifully. And as we read that, we've found ourselves maybe picking out a couple little details, but really cheering on David. Well, we've gotten to the spot last week where we started to see some of uh, one of David's faults shining through. And... Um, that's, that's good. The Bible's very good at fleshing out the heroes into being more realistic um, and, and, and telling us the whole story, right? And we, we're not getting a, a whitewashed history of who David was, nor are we getting um, just demonizing and canceling everybody, but we're seeing the whole picture. And David's been remarkable so far, but last week we saw him make a terrible, terrible decision. Uh, the, the law that God gave Moses when the Israelites were brought out of slavery and into the wilderness on their way to Canaan, he gave them laws to govern their nation by. And David, who's now king, believed, he loved the law of the Lord. He wrote songs. If you read his songs in the book of Psalms, he writes about how much he loves the law of the Lord. He has a good heart. The problem is, is that in the law of Moses, the law was that when they became a nation someday, that the future king was not to multiply wives to himself. The king was not to multiply wives. Because the fear was that in doing so, it would turn his heart away from God. It would, turn, it would corrupt his heart. And that was the warning. And David didn't heed that warning. We saw him, he married Michael as a young man. And then after his years of exile, they both won their, she married someone else. He married two other women. And then he comes to the throne and marries more in Hebron. And then he gets to the whole kingdom and he marries more wives and more concubines. And he's breaking the law of Moses specifically given to future kings. Now, I'm sure he could justify it. He probably said, well, the law says you shouldn't do that because it would corrupt your heart, but my heart's great. We always make ourselves an exception to the rules. And so David probably justified it, but that bad decision, that step he kept taking, he kept taking it over and over and more wives and more wives and concubines. And then we saw last week that when he brought Michael, his first wife, who he had been away from for 15 to 20 years in exile, and she was remarried and he was remarried, he brought her from her one husband and put her into his flock of wives because she was the king. And, and it hurt the man, and, and, and Michael was upset, and you saw her react wrongly to David. Instead of realizing that he was on a bad path, he just took another step and blamed her and basically isolated her as a consequence for the rest of her life because... 
this was, a, this was a blind spot. This was a wrong action. And we saw that last week. So David has been great, but this is a, a problem area. And unfortunately today, it goes worse. Today is a very dark story. I would love to tell you some good, happy stories today, but I have none. Today is a tough story, okay? And we just, but you know what? It's in the scriptures and God gave it to us and we're gonna look at it together in all of its ugliness. Ready? Roll up our sleeves and let's go. First of all, I want to just mention to you that I'm not going to tell you the story of 2 Samuel chapter 10, though I want to, but I kind of practiced this thing through and it took me about 15 plus minutes to do, and we don't have that kind of time today, trust me. So because of that, I want to encourage you on your own time this week to go home and read 2 Samuel 10, because it's a great story that we're largely skipping over for sake of time. But let me give you a couple high points to get your mind working, and then you can read it for yourself. And if you want to come, come and join me and talk about it some more, I'd love to tease it out with you. But here's um, 2 Samuel 10 in a nutshell. David finds out that the king of the Ammonites dies. The king of the Ammonites was good to David while he was a fugitive, and David felt appreciation towards him. So when his son took the throne, David ran over and tried to bless the new king by sending ambassadors his way. But the new king has some bad advice and they took it hostily and he terribly abused David's ambassadors. It's a terrible story. He humiliates and debases them and it basically starts a war. He starts a war with them through what he did. And that turns into bringing other nations into the war. And next thing you know, Israel, in an attempt at goodwill, is now fighting a war on two fronts. And that entire year is bloodshed. Now, at the end of the year, when winter sets in, Israel's won. They've done a good job. They've, they, they're a very powerful young nation, and they're winning the battles. However, they lost men, no doubt, in wars that did not need to happen because of one king's bad treatment of David's goodwill. So at the end of the year, everyone settles down, and David makes a plan that when the new year rolls in, we're going after the Ammonites for what they started and what they caused, and they're going to be done for. And all the other nations were staying out of it now because they realized Israel was no one to mess with. And so David's men, by the way, there's a great story in there about Joab and Abishai. Remember those two guys, those brothers that were super great soldiers? They're up and down a little bit. You just read, read the chapter on your own time. I can't get into it any more than I just did. But we get to our today's story in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. Let's get, let's get going. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go to, out to war, David sent Job and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. I'm going to pause in this, this half of the verse to explain something here. It says in the spring of the year, why, why does it say in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war? Because... There's two times that you didn't typically fight in, in battle in those days. The first one was late at night in the dark. Most of the time when the nighttime set in, you went back to your private spots and you started the fight when the light came back on. Once in a while, you'll see a story where they fought all night long because it was such an intense, entangled battle that they fought all night long. But usually, you regrouped. Even in recent history, you know, people regroup in the trenches and come back the next day, Right? Um, because they didn't have night vision goggles and, and, and high-powered equipment. Like, it was not the same era. So nighttime was a time to, to, to settle down. But the other time was winter. People didn't go out to fight during winter. It was in all the same reasons. And so when the springtime rolled around, well, it's time to get that part of the— Okay, it's kind of like northwest Indiana, right? In northwest Indiana, there, once winter is over, what comes next? Anybody? <laughs> Road construction, second winter, yes. Road construction comes next, right? That's just, it's, it's what happens. It's automatic. So when, um, 
Winter's over. In those days, it was time to get the army together because when you get the army together, you can go off and conquer some new territory, expand your empire, or get the army together to protect you from someone else attacking you. Either way, spring is here. Time to get the soldiers together. And David, in this case, is sending Joab and the army to go take on the Ammonites who started that whole mess in the last chapter that we didn't read today together. And they did. They destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. Now, if you understand warfare, if you nerd out about battles in history, you probably know this already, but humor me. It's, it's one thing to defeat an army in the field, which Israel does. It's not, it's not easy, but if you're stronger and superior, you can do it, and Israel did it. It's a whole nother thing to conquer a city with its walls and its fortifications. To lay siege to a city is hard. Because when you lay siege to a city, they have the upper position. They have the, the wall. They have the archers shooting down. They have the fortifications. In fact, the, the military uh, rule basically is for planning that you need a much larger force to attack than you do to defend because the casualty count will be higher in the situation. So they defeat the Ammonites in the battlefield. They come to the capital of Rabbah. They're going to they're finish them off for all the trouble that we skipped today in the previous chapter. They surround the city, and now is a long, long siege going on. But it says here that while they're doing that, it says that David, however, stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, just because, I just need to say this, because I've been around you know, these stories in this church for a while. So I want to make something clear in case we give David a bad rapport here. It was not unusual for David to stay behind. That's what kings would do. In fact, there are other stories where David stays behind in other confrontations. And there are other stories in the scriptures where other kings stayed behind and sent their generals to war. This is not unusual for David to stay home because David is the king. And the king has more to govern than just the, the military. So his forces are out doing the military work. And kings usually stayed behind. In early Israel under Saul and earlier under David, you might see them going out. But even already in David's story, he would stay Stay behind because he's the king. He has a whole kingdom to worry about. Now, here was how the world worked back then. When a king would stay home and govern his nation, but his army would go out to battle, when they conquered another city or another capital, the king would know that the victory was close and he would travel to the front lines so that when they marched into the new acquisition, he would come in and claim it as his own, even though he didn't do any of the hard work, but he's the king, so it's his thing. He would march in. He wouldn't let his generals go in and claim it. The king would show up at the end. But usually they stayed behind. So David's just doing typical king things, staying home during the fight. All that to say this. While he stayed home, verse 2, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. So, you know, when you're home and the city's probably a little quieter because the people of war are away, David's just sitting at home and he takes a midday nap. Why not? You can, you know. Things are a little chill right now. The, the, a lot of the men are gone to war. The women whose husbands, dads, sons are gone and the men who are too young or too older or just the, the local workers or the local guard are there. So things are a little more chill in Jerusalem than normal. And David takes a midday rest. And when he gets done resting, it's late afternoon. He does a couple things and then he heads up to the roof to look around as the evening settles in. Now, as the evening settles in, that's a great vantage point. If you've got a tall spot, it's like, if you've, I like to love to hike. I love to go to a mountain with a big vantage point to look out over an area. 
And if you don't have a mountain, just climb onto the roof. In fact, I don't know about all of you, but I like getting on this roof. How many of you have been on this roof before? Anybody here? A few of us? Okay. Yeah, a few of us have been on the roof. Tim, you and I were on the roof a couple of years ago working on that steeple for a while. And it was just like, it's, it's really that little skinny spot right there. Right there. And we're way up there by the steeple. It's a cool view. I'm taking video of the whole area. The leaves are changing colors. It was this time of year almost. And I love the vantage point of being up high and seeing the lay of the land. And David goes onto the roof. Whoops. David goes onto the roof and he looks out over his city that evening. And as he does, it says that as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, Again, because of my experience in church world and these stories, I need to clarify something for her sake here. She's, what she's doing is perfectly normal for her to do. Now, I want to talk about, about what she's doing. I must have got a bath. But, I mean, people back then, okay, there was no running water. Just a couple of things that you need to understand to appreciate the story. There was no running water. No one went over and flipped on their shower and got it nice and warm and toasty and, you know, to take a bath, people didn't take baths as often in those days because it wasn't as convenient. So just for those of you who don't like bad smells, just think about the world back then. And um, then um, if you lived in a rural area, you might have a, a body of water or a river to go to. If there was enough privacy, you can go down there. In cities, that was harder to do. If you lived in a city, you would have to go to, they'd have public baths, people who would actually go through the trouble of having water hauled in and, clean, and freshened and, and people could pay for a public bath in a city. But, of course, it costs money. And again, you just didn't do it every day for all those reasons. Now, the people who were a little bit more well-off sometimes had property where they have a nice backyard that was closed in and they could have maybe some, some type of what they would call a pool in their, not like we would picture in today, but a pool in their backyard where they can go out and they could wash. And again, it wouldn't be all the time. No one did that. But it's a place to, to bathe when, when appropriate, which... You know, I'm thankful I live in one. I'm glad I live today. Some of you, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, you're like you're the person who's like, no, I'm okay. I can go a while longer. But uh, back then, that was everybody. That was everybody, okay? So anyhow, this is a woman who is going out to her own property. Now, you'd have a property with some, some brush in the back, some shrubs, uh, maybe some man-built fencing if necessary to create a private courtyard. By the way, there's stories about this in ancient literature. Uh, remember those extra books that were written in the book of Daniel that are not included in our Old Testaments? Uh, the story of Susanna and others that you can read. They talk about similar stories. People of means who go out to their backyard, privacy enclosed, and they could, they could, and they could bathe if they have the means to do so. So that's what's going on here. This woman goes out, and what we find in the story, not to be too personal, but it's written in the story, is that she's going out to, to follow her Jewish principles of purification because she just finished her menstrual period. That's what the story says, and we'll see that momentarily. So she's doing what she's going to do because she's, that's the Jewish custom. There's very strict laws of cleanliness in that culture, fighting disease in ancient times, and laws about your very personal life. So she's going out in this, this seven-day period after that in her backyard, and she's taking a bath. The problem is, as private as it is, there is a vantage point. They live close to the palace because they're a prominent family. We'll get to that. And the palace is there. And if you're on the roof, but who would be on the roof? Who even thinks about looking at the roof? And if you did look at the roof, someone might not be there now, but are they there three minutes? I mean, you wouldn't even think about that. So she's just doing her own thing in the privacy of her own backyard. But then there's a peeper up there. David's walking around and it says he sees her. And he's like, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. So he's like doing this whole 
double take, like, whoa, hey. And then he's like a peeper. He's like standing up there on the roof just kind of watching her in the privacy of her own backyard. So what does David do next? I mean, David's got all these wives and concubines and the things we just talked about. So David, verse 3, sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba. He doesn't know her personally, may have seen her around. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, he knows those names because her father was somebody important. In fact, her, we'll see this way down the road. Her grandfather is someone important in the city. So she's got an important family background, and she's married to a man that David also knew named Uriah the Hittite. Now, let's talk about him. Uriah, what is he doing? He's a Hittite. What's he doing married to a Jewish woman prominent in, the, in the Jerusalem? What, what, what's Uriah's story? Well, to be married by Jewish law, he would have to have converted to Judaism at some point. And now he's married to this woman, and, she's, and he's living in the city. But here's what we know about Uriah. He was an elite soldier. When you read the, the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you read them, you'll see that David sometimes makes lists of people who were important in his administration, like leadership team names, some names we know from other stories, some names we don't know. He also makes a list of his elite special forces soldiers. Names like, well, like Uriah's on that list. There's a 37-name list in one spot and an 80-name list in another spot. And Uriah's on both lists. They're called David's mighty men. They're his special forces, his elite soldiers. And, he, and he, they made the Hall of Fame. Like he, they write their names down and immortalize them in the Hebrew Scriptures. So Uriah and other men on this list, many of them, they were with David back when David was running for his life as a fugitive. Remember how hundreds of people gathered to David and joined him in exile? A lot of his, his mighty men came all the way up through the ranks from the time that he was on the run. And as he grew, they grew with him. So Uriah's been around for a while, most likely. And at some point, he's a Hittite, but he, he joins David's force, probably in exile years. He's a great soldier. He's a man's man. And he sees Bathsheba, and then he converts to Judaism. I don't know why he converted to Judaism, but maybe it's because he saw a woman of unusual beauty, and he's like, then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer, you know? So he, he decides it's time to, so he, anyhow, he becomes um, part of the, the nation. And he was a fine catch himself. He's a great soldier. So there's a whole thing going on. I made a monkey's reference, and I didn't get near enough of a, a response for that. That was, come on now, that was, that was vintage. So I saw, I saw an eye roll, and I saw a few chuckles, a couple head shakes. Anyhow, so David um, is now, um, got this man in his army. He lives close to the palace because he's a trustworthy person. And David finds out that the woman he's been gawking at is his wife. Which is basically a warning, like, hey, David, it's Bathsheba, she's not available. She's the wife of your wife, she's the daughter. Okay, okay. So David is like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he, he says, I'm going to write her an apology note for peeping. Never mind, don't even tell her I was peeping. It never happened. It will never happen again. The end of the story, we move on. No, that's not what happens. It says in the next verse that David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. So, so David brings her over. Can you imagine what she's going through? She just comes out. It's the evening. She's in, the, been in her backyard. She comes in. She's probably thinking about her husband far away at war. Is he safe? How's it going? I miss him. She comes into the house, and there's a knock on her door in the evening. Who would knock on your door in the evening? 
So she cautiously opens the door, and there are several men standing there from the palace saying, the king wants to see you. Come with us. Now, what would you be thinking? Just help me out. What would you be thinking if you were in her shoes and the king sends messengers to say, the king wants to talk to you right now? What are you thinking they, this is about? Probably something, probably something happened to her husband. Like, something happened to my husband in battle, and he's important, and the king knows him, and he doesn't really know me, but he wants to tell me the news personally. She's probably thinking, oh, no. You know, I'm going to plan his funeral on the way over there. This must be bad news. So she heads over to the palace, and they usher her in there, and they usher her into David's private quarters. And then they leave. And after a few minutes, it becomes obvious that it's not about her husband about her. And David abuses his power one more in this case, worse than he ever has before, to sleep with her. Now, just in case, because I've been around, I know people sometimes will refer to this as adultery or an affair. That's not fair to Bathsheba in the story, because she's in a spot, a vulnerable spot, and David is the king. What's she supposed to do? She's been brought over there by men who left her in his presence, and he's making advances on her. He's stronger than that she is. He's weaker. He's the king. He do whatever he wants to do. What, make your life miserable. He's the king. You're in his turf, in his personal quarters, and the people who brought you are not in the room, but they're not far away, and he sleeps with her. And there's a couple Hebrew words that reinforce the, I won't get into the Hebrew because no one cares about that besides me probably, but there's a couple Hebrew words that, that reinforce this idea, but without going down that path, notice that it doesn't say they slept together. He slept with her. He used his power to take her, his authority, his, his position. Today, and, and that's, women didn't have the kind of rights. We discuss this all the time. In ancient times, women just didn't have the, the, the rights and treatment they ought to have. Today, that wouldn't fly. People do that, and they cover it up, and it comes out. You start movements in, in, in protest of that. CEOs get fired by their board of directors. Presidents or governors get impeached. Things happen consequentially today. But in that day, what David did is what David did. And then she goes home. Then she returns home. And what is she thinking on the way home? Like, whoa, what just happened? Did she go back to the pool again? I don't know what she's going to do. She just goes home. Shocked in the days that are left to process. And you're looking at David saying, David, what are you doing? But this is the culmination of a pattern that we've seen developing. Ever since David ignored Deuteronomy 17, 17, and added wives and then mistreated his first wife in the process of doing that, He's taken another step every single time. And now he's done something that I don't think David ever imagined he would do. But he never, he never thought he would go that far. But he did. And if I can pause the story and just say this to all of us today, that's what happens in life. Be very careful because sometimes we could end up in some place we never dreamed we would. And we, and we might ask ourselves, how did I get here? So let me just say, do you know how you get to a place where you never thought you'd be? Like, I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never be that person. I would never end up in that spot. How do you get to a place you never thought you'd be? And the answer is one step at a time. Just one step at a time. And David's made some steps along the story. And now he's gone one step further. And that's why we always say, be careful. Look ahead. Straighten up and live by integrity and say, if I don't want to end up somewhere, I'm not going to meander down that path. Don't just take the, the short-term look at what you want now. Where does this go? But David has taken steps, and now he's at a spot he never thought he'd be.
And what we do along the way in life when we do things like that is we're like, each step we're like, oh, this ain't that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal until it is. And now it was. Verse five, later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. I'm not sure David maybe felt bad after he did what he did. Like he got that out of his system and he's like, well, I can't believe I did that with Uriah's wife and I'll never do it again. We'll just pretend it never happened. And then, you know, you think you've moved past it and it's all behind you. Then the weeks tick on and all of a sudden, I'm pregnant. Oh, that's how that goes. Now what am I gonna do? Now, now I thought I evaded something that has come back to bite me. And David is in a pickle. So David's gonna do the right thing. He's gonna either now or at the end of the war call Uriah back and say, Uriah, I blew it. Uriah, here's what I did. And, and he's gonna face the music. And it's gonna be ugly. Like it's not gonna be a pretty conversation. There's gonna be some reparations and who knows what else, right? But David's gonna face Uriah and do the right thing after this, correct? No. David is going to move into full-on cover-up mode. And that's where the story gets really dark. Verse six, then David sent word to Joab. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David and Joab must be frustrated to say, why am I sending one of my best elite soldiers to David? What, why do these messengers want? I could use Uriah out here. Okay, Uriah, what happened? Go, go, the king wants to see you. So Uriah is brought back with these messengers to see King David in the middle of a war. And remember, he's a, he's a special forces troop. Trooper. Verse 7, when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along. How was the war progressing? And I imagine Uriah's thinking, it's progressing pretty well. Be even better if I was out there. That's where I ought to be. I mean, come on now. Why don't you pull me out of the battlefield? It's, it's kind of like pulling Justin Jefferson off of the sidelines in the middle of the game or, or Patrick Mahomes or for all you Taylor Swift fans, Travis Kelsey off the field in the middle of the game and, and, and saying, hey, why don't you sit on the sidelines with me and let's talk about how you think the game is going. And you're like, coach, the game would go a lot better if I was in the game. That's what David's doing. He's like, I got Uriah back at the palace. How's it going? Um, good. Good, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that, Uriah. Thank you for the report. Hey, by the way, then he told Uriah, go on home and relax, you know? You've been gone a while. Your, your wife of unusual beauty, or so I'm told, I have no idea, is, is back at the house, and so go back and see her, and, you know, maybe you guys can, you know, catch up a little bit, wink, wink. So David even sends a gift to Uriah after he left the palace, which implies that he sends food and a feast and some wine. He's like, come on, buddy. Have a good night. But Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the palace guard would have people who were stationed 24-7. And so at nighttime, you'd have people on shifts. And the guys who weren't working on guard duty would be sleeping in some kind of bunkers near the entrance. And, and Uriah just goes out there and sleeps with the other guards. And David's thinking he went home and problem solved because, you know, if it, about eight, eight to eight and a half months from now she's pregnant, you know, we can, you know, early birth, you know. So he thinks he's covered his tracks. But the next morning he realizes that Uriah did not go home. When, you're, when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night for being away for so long? Come on. And Uriah's answer has got to sting a little bit. Let's just look at it. Uriah replied, 
The ark of the Lord and the armies of Israel and Judah are out living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are, are camping in open fields. In other words, they're fighting and they're bleeding and dying and serving and sacrificing for our nation. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? Who would do such a thing with my wife? I mean, who, I swear I would never do such a thing, ever. And David's got to be like, oh, ouch. And so the question is, does Uriah know what David did? Now, I don't think Uriah knows. But there are some people who speculate that Uriah knew. And if you'll allow me the extra time, I want to tease that thought out a little bit. That, that some speculate that Uriah knew. And the reason they think so is because this wasn't a secret. David has sent messengers to find out who Bathsheba was in the first place. So there were witnesses. Messengers brought her to David. Messengers brought her the news that she was pregnant and messengers went to get Uriah to bring him back to David. And people, come on now, people talk. In administrations and every other place in the world, people leak the juicy gossip. Everyone's got to tell that one other person. Maybe Uriah's coming back from the battlefield and as they're camping by the fire on their return trip, one of the guys says, Uriah, I don't want to be out of line, but you should know something has happened while you have been away at war with your wife and the king. And maybe Uriah is saying to David, we got a war going on. In, in, in the name of this nation and its honor, our king is, our people are out there fighting and bleeding and dying and sleeping in tents in the fields. Who would be back at home sleeping with Bathsheba? Drink something like that, hmm? That'd be painful. But I don't think Uriah knew. I do not think Uriah knew. That's just a speculation. I think he did not know, and here's why. Because David was in full-on cover-up mode, which means David's got his trusted people on the job. Because it, it, the whole thing falls apart if Uriah knows what's happening. So I think David's covering it up pretty well. So Uriah comes back and he just, he stays by the palace guard that night out of integrity. Because it was not uncommon, by the way, in history for soldiers, especially elite soldiers, to abstain from partying and from women before going into battle to make themselves sharper and more ready. And so Uriah's like, those guys are out there, my buddies, my team, the guys that I stand side by side with, we bleed and fight and die together. That's my guys. We're loyal to each other. I'm not going to have them out there sleeping in the field while I'm pulled back here and go home and whine and dine and sleep with my wife. That's not fair. I'm a part of a group. We stick together. And I'm staying out here and sleeping with a guard out of my integrity. But when David hears that, does that sting a little bit? Does David's paranoia meter turn up? Because that's what we, when we do wrong and we're trying to hide it, it's like, do they know? Oh no, they know. Does David wonder? So David's got to try harder to cover it up. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Check it out. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. He's like, maybe if I get him drunk, really drunk, maybe he'll go home and do what I need him to do to help me pull off the cover-up. But again, even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And David's frustrated at him. He's like, what's wrong with Uriah? What's wrong with Uriah? What's wrong with you, David? What are you trying to do here? Like, he's not cooperating in my cover-up, you know? Like, why are you being so difficult? So David's, that's what we do, by the way, right? When we've done something wrong and we're trying to get out of it, we, get, we project our frustrations at the wrong people. We project our anger at people that have no business holding it because we're frustrated. And David's projecting frustration at Uriah. And so David decides it's finally time to come clean and do the right thing. Again, no. Here it goes. 
Verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, and then pull back so that he'll be killed. Wow. I mean, David's like, I don't want to kill him right here in the city because that would look bad. Maybe that would go down rough because he's a great soldier. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get my own hands dirty directly, so I'll let him be executed by proxy. I'll let someone else do it for me, and then what? Can you imagine when Uriah shows back up to the battlefield? And by the way, Uriah is carrying his own death letter. This guy's been nothing but loyal. All these just probably since David's fugitive years standing by him and, all, and he's come all this way. And, he, and he's out in the battlefield serving his king and his nation while David's sleeping with his wife, uh, you know, forcing his wife. And then he, he comes back home and, and does the right thing again as a man of integrity. Now he's carrying a letter out of duty for his king to his commander that in the sealed letter says, Make sure you're right, it dies. How does that feel? Well, he has no idea what's happening. Can you imagine he hands the letter to, your, to Joab and Joab, when he gets back, and Joab's like, oh, good, Uriah. Yeah, I'll take that letter. Good to have you back. Get ready. We got a lot of fighting going on. I'll catch you up pretty quick. Hold on, let me see what the letter says. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, get back to battle, buddy. And sure enough, at some point, Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's men, strongest men were fighting. By the, the city wall was a dangerous spot because they'd fire arrows down from the top. And also they would people come out close to the city wall and fight. They can retreat back in safely after small skirmishes. And Joab said, there's a dangerous spot right here. People will die. We may win as we're good, but we're going to lose some people. He puts Uriah in that group. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And the implication from the letter rounds out that story that what most likely happened at some point while people are fighting and dying is Joab and the men pulled back. And I wonder, I wonder because we don't know, if Uriah dies before he knows what's happening or does Uriah have a moment where he turns around and he notices Joab and his buddies pulling back and he's like, what are they doing? What's going on? And he's in a terrible spot and he's, uh, he's being abandoned. Does he have a moment or not where he sees that and says, Why? Does it ever cross his mind that the people that he was loyal enough not to even go home to his wife when he's back in Jerusalem because they're a team and this is people. And now Joab is saying, come on guys, does he know what's being done to him before he's killed? And he dies. And David, what have you done? Like seriously, what have you done? Well, David done wrong. But now David's in cover-up mode. And here's what David figured out. That it was easier, it was easier to stab him in the back than to look him in the eye. Right? That's what happens. It's easier to say, because what does he say to Uriah? What does he say? Hey, Uriah, um, how, how's, how's, the, how's uh, the weather? Hey, by the way, well, you were gone. Your wife, and I, I brought her over and, you know, because he's going to find out. When he comes back from battle and she's got a baby or she's very pregnant. What's she going to say? It's the virgin birth again? I mean, you know, a thousand years early. I mean, what, what, what's going to happen when Uriah comes home? Does David blame somebody else? Does he deny it? Does he cover it up? Does he have a, con a conversation with, jo with Uriah and say, Uriah, I blew it, man. I just blew it. What's Uriah going to do? I mean, to me, he had three options. Option one is to say, okay, well, she's yours now. 
I want, I want to, reparations and be discharged from your service. I'm going to go my separate way and I'm out of here. And just live with that. Or he could say, well, that's her baby as much as yours and she's my wife and you shouldn't have done that. I'm taking her and the baby. You'll never see him. We're going to be out of here. You, you let us go and take care of us properly and we're out of here and you release us. Or maybe he says, how about you let your guard step away and you don't have to fight man to man. If you're really sorry, give me a fair fight. I don't know what he would say. Any of those scenarios or others would be very uncomfortable for David to face. And David says, I don't want to do that because it would break Uriah's heart to know what I did to his wife. So I'll just have him killed because that's much better, you know. But this was not about Uriah. This was about David. And for David, it was easier to stab him in the back than to look him in the eye. It's easier to avoid the confrontation that makes me uncomfortable no matter what it costs you. Well, verse 18, then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king, but the king might get angry and he might ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know they would be shooting from the walls? Like, that was kind of a dumb move, Joab. If the king gets mad and says, why would you get so close to the wall? Then just tell him, uh, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. And the messenger does exactly that. He tells him the whole battle, the, the, the tough skirmish, and that Uriah had died too. And check out David's response in verse 25. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. Hey, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Just fight harder next time and conquer the city. It's okay. It's all good. Seriously, like, wow. Just wow. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife, when Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Can you imagine this, what this girl has gone through? Like, from the time that she was coming into her house after a nice bath and, and being knocked at the door, being brought to the king, thinking, why does the king want me now? Is something bad happened to my husband? Well, not yet, No. And then she's brought to the palace and what happens to her happens to her. And then she's sent back home to process that, however that looks, processing all that. Where's her resource? Where's her recourse? And then she's pregnant. And then the king's like, oh, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And then and suddenly her husband comes back to the city and she never sees him. Does she, does she know he was there and didn't come see her? Or does she never know, know he was there? But all of a sudden one day she hears the word that he's dead and she mourns. And she grieves so much loss and so much change in her life. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son. A few months later, she gives birth. And a few months after that, everything's back to business as usual. She's now one of the harem. And you read that story, and here's what I think. What happened to David? What happened to David? Because look, if we can rewind a few months, when King Saul became king, remember King Saul? He seemed like a good king, didn't he, at the time? But then as he became king longer, he made bad decisions, he became a bad king, and then a terrible king. And we made, this, we made an observation. We said, did Saul become bad when he became to power? Like, did power ruin him? Did absolute power corrupts absolutely? Is that what happened to Saul? Or was Saul already a bad person that power just revealed his troubles? We weren't positive which way it went. But with David, we know. 
David has been amazing all the way through our stories. He has trusted God when he was a nobody, writing songs in the sheepfold, trusting God to help him as a rising star, trusting God when he was a fugitive and in exile for years upon years and never losing faith, and coming to a spot where he took over the southern tribe of Judah and, and, and trusting God through that period, getting the whole nation and bringing the ark of God into the city and worshiping God's central. David's been a great guy. But somewhere in the middle of his power and his peak of his success, he did this. And it's just an observation of life that success has done more damage to people than struggle ever has. Right? Have you all seen that before? That people can struggle sometimes and keep the faith and trust God and do the right thing and, and fail and get back up from failure and, and keep going. But then when we succeed, it's like, oh, I'm entitled. Oh, I deserve this. Oh, I'm untouchable. Or whatever it may be. And David has succeeded beyond his wildest dreams in his life. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, the women love it. Did David convince himself along the way that Bathsheba wanted it? I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't hold her down screaming. She didn't complain. What's she supposed to do, though? I think, I think she wanted what happened. I think that, you know, I'm the king. I have lots of wives. You're right. I should understand, but I'll cover it up. But he won't cooperate. I'll kill him. Now she's my wife. How has it gotten to this spot? All I know is that David knew he blew it. But at some point, David, listen, David was afraid of the cost of his actions. And so he made someone else pay the price. I want you to think about this. Um, what David did with Bathsheba was very wrong. You can argue it was a crime of passion. Like he saw her, he's like, I want that. And then at some point um, when he brings her to the past, maybe he was wanting to feel out the situation, but once he saw her up close, he got even more, and he had the opportunity in his chambers. He just went full-on crime of passion, and it's wrong beyond words. But what David did to Uriah was a crime of premeditation. That was, a, that was because David's like, I did something wrong, and I don't want to face the music. Because, because it's hard to face the cost of wrongdoing, right? It's a temptation we all experience that when we do something wrong, I don't want to pay for that, so I'm going to let someone else pay the price. I'll, I'll deflect it. I'll pass the blame or I'll, pay, I'll, I'll at least cast some shade or I'll do something. I'll do whatever it takes to let someone else pay a price so I don't have to because I can't bear the cost of my actions. And that's the human nature thing. And I want to just say this to you today. Yes, live by integrity. We all should, I said earlier, don't just take the, the short look at what you want to do today. Take the long look. That's what, that's, what, that's what integrity does. And say, where does this path lead me? And don't end up there one step at a time unless you want to be there. But here's the thing. Along the way, even people of integrity will mess up sometimes. Not necessarily like this, but on some small scale or a larger scale, people of integrity will, will make some mistakes and some sins. Because we are human and we are sinners. So here's my answer to you, and, and, and please hear me. When our integrity fails or when we fail our integrity, have enough integrity to do the right thing then. And if you find yourself in a spot where you're like, I don't want to face the cost of a previous action, here's my advice today. When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Right? When you find yourself in a hole, just stop. Just, just call for Get help. Say, if I get help, people are going to know. Someone's going to know. They might make fun. They might be, I might look, but it might be a price to pay. But it's better than to keep on digging, thinking that that's a path out. Integrity says it's time to own our actions. So I want to share a verse with you that's not in the story today. 
is a verse that's interestingly written in a book of Proverbs written largely by David's son, the future King Solomon. By the way, Solomon has a very interesting attachment to today's story that we're going to get to a different week. But Solomon would someday be the king after David dies. And just like David wrote songs to God and are included in the book of Psalms, Solomon wrote songs to God also. He wrote the Song of Solomon. And he also wrote wisdom literature like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And in, in Solomon's writing of Proverbs, he makes a statement that he had to have experience with, and maybe even this story would play a role. Here's what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 28 in verse 13. He said, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. People who cover up their sins will not prosper. But, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Now, does the fact that when we confess, when we own what we've done wrong, when we have enough integrity to face the music, does that mean that we'll receive mercy means there's no consequences? No, it doesn't mean there's no consequences. It means that the consequences that still come are laced with some mercy. It's kind of like in the court system when someone breaks the law and commits a crime and they're put on trial. If they confess and plead guilty and they're sentenced to something because of their guilty, but they, they pled guilty, they always receive a more lenient or merciful sentence because they said, I'm guilty. When someone says, I'm not guilty, it has to be proven guilty, it's always a harsher thing when it's proven afterwards because confessing versus denying is a big deal. It's like moms and dads. You know this, raising kids, right? And, and I know all of our young families are camping today, but to all of us, online or in person, if you're raising kids, you, you do this. You, you do this, don't you? You say to your children, um, one of the most important rules to have in our life is don't lie. Like if, if you don't lie, we'll be okay. If, if you do something wrong, just face it and we'll deal with it. And yes, there might be consequences still, but it's going to be a whole lot worse if you cover it up. We've got to figure it out the hard way because lying breaks trust right? And lying damages the relationship. So what do you teach your kids so that when they're adults they'll do someday is don't break trust and don't damage the relationship. Tell the truth. If you have two rules in your house, one of them should be don't lie. And, and, and that's what you should do. And everything should be about rebuilding the relationship that is damaged. And so that's what the scripture says. Solomon says, listen, when you cover up your sins, you won't prosper. You might prosper a while longer. You might get by with it for a while longer, but at some point it will catch up. But when we confess, as hard as that is, and when we turn from what we've done and we just own it, though there may be some consequences we don't want, there's at least mercy involved when someone, don't we all know when someone comes to us and they've wronged us and they own it, we might not be happy, we might have fallout still, but we appreciate them coming with humility and honesty and it usually makes it better than if they just try shenanigans. People who cover up their sins don't prosper. Maybe for a while, but when and if we confess and turn from them, we receive mercy. And I know what someone might be thinking in the story today. You're thinking, um, Arlen, cute proverb, yay. But I don't think it's true because David got away with it, right? I mean, look at the story. He slept with a girl. Consequences came. He got her husband killed. A year later, she's got a baby boy. She's in his posse of wives, and he's got a new, one more heir to the, his, you know, one more child in his name. It turned out pretty okay for him. 
But the story's not over. In fact, the chapter ends. We didn't read the last, the last sentence. The chapter we've been reading today ends this way. It says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord. No one fooled him. It's kind of like when people are committing crimes or stealing something or doing something wrong. They always look to the left, look to the right, make sure no one's watching. But they always forget to look up. And David took care of all the horizontal fallout of his decisions. But he forgot about the vertical. And the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And that brings us to the rest of the story. And I know it's a heavy story today, but I got news for you. The next story is so powerful, you don't want to miss it. Because it does bring consequence, and it does bring mercy, and it does bring acknowledgement. It does bring this tragedy and healing. And it makes this thing come together in a really a remarkable story next Sunday you won't want to miss. But for today, as we wrap this up, here's what I would say. How are you doing? Are we being people of integrity? Listen, and none of us are perfect. This is a heavy story, but please follow. It's, it's the story in our scriptures that we came to next. Here's what I want to beg you to do. As you walk down the path of life, come on now, and you're tempted to go down a path that you don't want to end up down, but you kind of want to meander down for a little ways, please understand that one step at a time is how we get someplace. So have enough integrity to just stand up straight, take the long look and say, that's not a good place to go and walk away. Find a path that ends up where you want it to go and walk down that path even if it's hard. But come on now, listen, before I'm done, if today you found yourself in a spot where there's something you need to face, someone you need to apologize to, something you need to own up to, something you need to confront, and you're scared to because you don't want to face the discomfort of the situation, I would just plead with you for the sake of that, of that relationship of, of all of your life to trust God's word, to trust God's word. That when we conceal and cover up our sins, we won't prosper. We might go a little longer, but it does come around. That's just how it works. But if we confess and if we own it and if we face it and turn away, we will receive mercy. That's how it works. It's maybe a matter of faith, trusting God's ways over our own. Let's pray.